Peter has such a great honor. Thank you, Ken, so much. If you have your copy of uh, God's Word, you can turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 22 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll go to both those places and read this morning. I want to tell you what a privilege it's, it is to be here and, and preach for you. I have thoroughly enjoyed the worship service this morning. And Leanne, what a piano player you are. Gosh, and you got all those cute girls. They're the cutest things ever. And uh, so anyway, but uh, just I have so enjoyed and seeing all these beautiful kids. And I want to tell you that um, Peter's such a dear friend of mine. I've known him for several years now, but in the last year or two, we've gotten to be much closer. I had him come and preach for me um, last year at a conference we had. And he did such a good job. The Lord has certainly blessed this church uh, to give you a minister of the gospel that puts at the center uh, the gospel message and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, my prayer is for him uh, here to just that you would love him and uh, uh, honor him and pray for him and hold him up and that he would love you and preach the gospel to you and tell you all the truth that's found in God's word. Brother, we get to preach the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ, don't we? Isn't that wonderful? And then, um, again, I want to thank you that you've allowed me to come here and, and preach for you. Um, Peter, I asked Peter, he said, he said, would you come and preach for me? I said, I'd like to swap pulpits with you. You've invited me and I'm going to have him back. He doesn't know this yet, but Lord willing, I'm going to have him back in late April. He's going to preach for me at a conference again that we have in the spring. And so that's my formal invitation to you right in front of your people yes great perfect um so anyway uh he says would you come preach for me i said okay great i'll do that he goes um i says uh, what do you want me to preach from he says you preach from anywhere you want to preach from it'll be like a week off for you well then like a day later he says uh we have a series and i want you to preach on the lord's supper and i'm like <laughs> So I'm going to have to work harder. I go from not having a week off, right, to actually working harder than I would ordinarily work. Uh, no, this is a big deal uh, because this is important, isn't it? And the Lord's Supper, I mean, this is the ordinance of the church. It's the sacrament, right? God's given us. And we want to know what we're doing when we come here and take and receive this, don't we? So let's look at a couple of places in Scripture this morning. Um, Luke 22, verse 14 is where we'll start. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it would be who was going to do this. Then we take 
our second reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we'll read beginning in verse 14. We'll read down to verse 23. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat sacrifices, participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord. And the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Beloved, uh, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. I am a Christian. I grew up a Christian. And therefore, I have a Christian worldview. However, that does not mean that I haven't been shaped and molded by the secular culture that I've been immersed in for my entire life. I'm a child of the 1980s and the 1990s, Generation X, which was a time of skepticism and irreverence and that had a great impact upon my generation. People older than me generally conform better than those my age or younger. The older generation understood the need, better understood the need for reverence and for dressing the part. My generation wondered why you need to dress up for anything and we held very little to be sacred or mysterious. Perhaps it's our experience. It's my generation that came privy to, became privy, privy to the information prior to that prior generations were kept in the dark about. A lot of mysteries became known. If you think about it, it's my generation that reaped the benefits, I think, the benefits of the flourishing of science, which helps us explain unimaginable mysteries. The secrets to uh, magic, right? Uh, Magic tricks. They became commonly known. And I'm sad to say it, but professional wrestling was outed as fake. (laughs) At least the outcome was anyway, right? And those things made us skeptical. They made us skeptical of what we see with our own eyes. We are a generation directly impacted by the Kennedy assassination, Watergate, and Vietnam, which leads us to question authority. We have endured scandals within religious movements like precipitous falls of bigger-than-life pastors and televangelists and the sexual abuse scandals of the Catholic priests that was covered up by their church for decades. Such events have eroded our trust in institutions and with the rise of popular, humorous, and likable characters out of the new atheist movement, 
meaning our generation and now younger have simply found reasons to quit believing in anything spiritual or anything that transcends what we experience through our senses. And even though I have a Christian worldview, these things have impacted me because they've impacted the culture around me. And I have felt in my life the pull to de-emphasize the spiritual nature of spiritual things that I believe in. Not to disbelieve the facts given to us in the Bible about Jesus and His virgin birth and His miracles and His resurrection, but to meet somewhere in the middle. For instance, to de-emphasize the spiritual warfare that is going on. It is true that in our flesh we all hold alone a sufficient deal of resistance to God to prevent ourselves from ever being saved. Total depravity is absolutely true about us. Yet, there are demons with a vested interest in preventing our salvation. I have also held that false religions are simply man's attempts to describe God and explain where He comes from apart from special revelation found in the Bible, a sort of seeing the world's false religions as simply wrong and uninformed. That's not accurate at all, actually. It's actually that they are the doctrines of demons. As Paul said in our text today that we read, what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. And it should be no surprise to us that a demon, that it's a demon that's behind a God like Molech, which devours the children of its worshipers. And I said all that to say that I think that what you and I both need to resist in a world that has sought to demythologize everything is recognizing the deep significance of God's sacraments or His ordinances in His church. The supper can't be reduced to a mere ritual devoid of spiritual experience. But the truth is, we may not be thinking about the spiritual realities that are taking place in those things. We may just see them as things that we do, and if so, well, we'd be missing out. God has given them to us, not as a mere initiation, right, as in baptism, or as a collective exercise for us all to do together as in the supper as a way to organize our experience, but as actual ways in which God meets His people. Theologian Edmund Clowney wrote, By faith, the sacraments present to our senses the touch of the unseen, the foretaste of heaven's feast with the Lord. To keep our feet planted, we, we're not talking about holy magic where the elements themselves contain the blessing. We're not getting a piece of Christ here or there or a sip of Him out of a cup. The gift in them is actually Christ Himself. His presence with us. We get the whole Christ in the ordinances. We'll get more into that a little bit later. But first we want to talk about the roots of the Lord's Supper. As we read in our text this morning... The Lord's Supper was instituted at the time of the Passover celebration. That link between the two is essential for us to understand what's going on here. The Passover, of course, is that great Old Testament event of salvation where God saved Israel up uh, out of the hand of Egypt 
He parted the Red Sea for His people to walk over on dry ground. And when Egypt pursued them, um, it became their judgment. The walls of water that were high above them crashed down upon them and they were drowned while the people of God were saved. Before these things took place, God gave Israel the Passover meal to eat, to eat, to prepare themselves. And it was that meal that they recreated year after year in the Passover feast. And the imagery there in the Old Testament is ultimately filled, fulfilled in the New Testament through Christ. That Passover lamb was killed in Goshen in place of the firstborn sons of Israel. And it finds its ultimate fulfillment in the death of Christ on our behalf. The death of the substitute is at the heart of the Passover and it's at the heart of the Lord's Supper. At the Passover, this little lamb dies in my place. In the Supper, the Lamb of God, a true substitute, has taken away our sins. But there's more Old Testament Testament imagery in the meal here. We 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 aren't given a lamb to eat with bitter herbs for a sacred meal as Israel was given. That's not our meal. Instead, Jesus selects for our meal bread and wine or the fruit of the vine. And these are elements that uniquely point us to Christ. And they are given because of what those elements have meant for the God's people throughout the Old Testament. Bread symbolized God's provision for His people. We remember that Israel was in the wilderness, right? They were hungry. Instead of trusting in God and humbly asking Him for food, what well, they do? They grumbled against Him, didn't they? But even then, God was good to His undeserving people. What did He do? He dropped bread out of the heavens for Israel to feed upon. And then even when they go into the land, it's the availability of bread for God's people that symbolizes God's care. They needed God to bless them by providing bread for them. And if He didn't, well, they wouldn't have anything. If He didn't, they would have nothing. And we see that fulfilled in the person of Jesus. John chapter 6, He tells us that He is the bread that has come down from heaven. And if you eat of Him, you shall never hunger or thirst again. And it's this thought that brings us to the Lord's table. How do I feed upon Christ? And the answer is, is that it's by faith. As Augustine said, believe and you have eaten already. Did you grasp that? Believe and you've eaten already. And so we don't separate the efficacy of the bread that we take at the table from faith. Now Rome does, right? According to them, the bread itself has value in it apart from the faith of the one receiving it. But dear ones, there is no spiritual nourishment in the bread apart from the faith of the one receiving it. For the believer to eat the bread at the supper in is in one sense, it is to demonstrate that he has already believed upon Christ. And by believing, we feed upon him. All right, so, you, so you believe, therefore you feed upon Christ. And in the supper, you show that, right? And you feed upon the Lord Christ. 
Jesus has also given us the cup to drink in the supper. And in several places in the Old Testament, the cup symbolized the wrath of God and the judgment that sinners would have to drink up. Psalm 75, 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed that He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Beloved, who are the wicked of the earth? We are. We are. And yet we know that as our substitute, Jesus drank down the cup of the God's wrath that was meant for us. We remember how it was that He was in the Garden of Gethsemane just hours before He was about to be crucified. And He was praying there. And what did He ask His Father? If you're willing, He said, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What's He talking about there? Psalm 75, 8, isn't he? That's what he's talking about. Jesus knew that he was about to drink down the cup of the wrath of God reserved for our sins. And he would have to drink down all that, the foam on top. Have you seen those? A big, a, a, I'm not a wine drinker or a beer drinker or anything like that. Like you see some of those thick beers. I think it's like Guinness. It's got this dark, and he's got that foam on top. You see it on the commercials. And, or you see the, the cup of, 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 of thick red wine, don't you? And that foam on top. And you know what's down in there is that, those chunks, right? The dregs is what you call that. And I always think to myself, I'm not a wine drinker. And I, I'd be like, I would have it horrible to have to drink all that. To, to me, you may be different, but. But uh, yes, it's, 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 so Jesus knew, knows he's about to drink down the cup of the wrath of God reserved for our sins. And he would have to drink down all the foam on top and all that chunky dregs down in the bottom of that cup of the wrath of God for your sin and mine. And there would not be one drop that he would not consume in that poison cup. And that's what happened to him at the cross. All of God's fury for the sins of His people was poured out on Christ there at Calvary. And He drank it down. All of it. So why must we drink this cup then? Because in drinking, we are acknowledging that the judgment that we should have drunk down from God's cup of wrath was instead consumed by Christ. We are confessing when we drink that we deserve death for our sins. So similar. It's so similar to what baptism conveys. I know Peter preached on that last week. Water was this element of judgment in the Scriptures. that The flood came and judged the earth. The waters of the Red Sea judged Egypt. But God's people went down into those same waters, right? 
They were spared. Moses, that was oh, a huge ark to us. I mean, this is a worldwide flood. You can imagine the waters are high and the winds blowing. And if you were looking on the horizon, I bet that ark disappears, doesn't it? And then comes up, right? Disappears. What's that look like to you, by the way? <laughs> Baptism, doesn't it? Or Israel passing through the parted waters of the Red Sea and the waters high above them. Immersed, right, by the judgment, the judgment of God. They are protected. They are held safe. And that's your baptism. You go down into the waters of judgment. You are preserved. And that, by the way, doesn't take place in sprinkling or in pouring. You are buried into it as the waters came up over the ark. And yet Noah was preserved of the waters drowned the Egyptians. And were high above the people of God, yet they were preserved. In the cup we recognize that it was Christ that drank down the wrath of God for us. His blood was shed for our sins. And can you imagine in that moment Jesus took the pitcher for them to see and poured out the wine into the cup to drink. What a vivid picture of the blood of our Savior being spilt. And then we are to drink that down. That spiritually we are drinking down the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the bread that's torn from the loaf reminding us that Christ's flesh was torn for us. And when then we would eat that as though we were eating His flesh. We drink that as though we are drinking His blood. And what offensive imagery that is. And yet it's a reminder, church, of how awful and terrible sin is, isn't it? Jesus' sacrifice is not a, a bloodless sacrifice. It's a bloody one. And it was the blood of the precious Savior that was spilt for us. One more thing found in the imagery of the cup. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. We just read it today, didn't we? For they shall be filled. He says in John chapter 6, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Those that thirst after righteousness shall be filled, shall be filled because they shall drink up the righteousness of Jesus Christ. To eat is to believe. To drink is to drink in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Do you remember that Paul said in Philippians that he wanted to be, quote, found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So in the supper you feed upon Christ 
by faith as the bread of life. You drink in His righteousness which you have, have to have to be accepted by God. Right? Because you, you can't go with your righteousness, can you? And stand before Him. You need it to be wrapped around you like a beautiful garment. You need to drink it down. Because there's life in it. There's so much good biblical theology rooted in the supper that feeds our souls in one sense. We look to the past, don't we? We're looking back to what Christ has done for us. We are also drawn to what is going on presently. Christ is with us in the supper, supplying our needs. The Bible tells us that when we eat and drink, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And we also look to the future. The supper where the people of God gather together to share a meal in the presence of Christ represents for us a foreshadowing of the marriage supper of the Lamb depicted in Revelation 19 when Jesus comes back at the end of the age and He makes all things new. We will eat and drink today in the supper looking forward to the time of renewal where there's no more sin and no more sorrow. And best of all, being face to face with our God. That which had prevented us from being with Him, namely our sins, will be wholly done away with. And as you can see, there's a lot there for us to meditate upon and feed upon when we come to the supper. So we've spoken of the presence of Christ during the supper. What, what do we mean by that? Now, there are four views that I think the church has wrestled with. One is the memorial view, which is probably the most prevalent among people and is actually supported by all other three positions as well. There's no Christian viewpoint on the supper that denies that we are remembering what Christ has done for us and what He will do. But we would be missing a whole lot if we held that the supper is only a memorial or a remembrance. Chad Van Dixern, I guess that's how his name, postulates that church members will generally hold a memorialist form of sacramental minimalism if the supper is always explained from 1 Corinthians 11, which is where the warning for the fencing of the table comes from. He says, only when 1 Corinthians 10 is incorporated into the celebration will church members understand communion with Christ, our mystical union with Him, and the fellowship that's in the supper. And what has Paul said so vividly in 1 Corinthians 10? Verse 16, he says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body. For we all partake of, one, of the one bread. You know, I'll bet you Peter's preached this for you. Because that's just what good preachers do. One of the brilliant doctrines in the church that rarely gets talked about is that of union with Christ. And that's when we believe into Jesus and we become one with Him. And that's illustrated in Paul's teaching about the many becoming one body in which Christ is the head. Peter illustrates it a little bit differently. He illustrates it like it's a building where Christ is cornerstone, the foundation of this building 
It's the prophets and the apostles. And then you and I and every other believer that make up this building are bricks. One by one, building up the house of God. And what these things illustrate for us is union with Jesus Christ. In baptism, the one becomes many. In the supper, the many becomes one. And we see their union with Jesus Christ. So like a bank account, all my sin gets transferred under the account of Christ. So all this negative debt that I have, right? All this that's credited against me, or that, that I've earned actually, in the red, in the ledger, all of that, It's counted to Christ's account. And the reverse is also true because all that He has in terms of what He's earned for us in blessing, so all the debit, right, all that's in His account because of His perfect life, His death, all of that gets credited to my account because I am one with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the great exchange, isn't it? 2 Corinthians 5.21 has taught us this. He that knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Our union with Christ is displayed and even enjoyed when we take the supper because we participate in it. So to view the supper as a mere memorial falls short of what is being taught and what the believer enjoys. Of course, what we reject is the Roman Catholic view called transubstantiation, which says that in the Mass there is another sacrifice on the altar in the church, albeit a, a bloodless one. And so the miracle of the Mass is that the bread becomes the actual physical body of Christ and the cup becomes the actual blood of Christ. You know, there are all kinds of problems with this. There are scriptural implications. Hebrews tells us that Christ has been offered once for sins. To say he's offered over and over again implies God's word has a contradiction. There are Christological implications. We know that Christ is both man and God. 100% man, 100% God, 200%, right? Jesus is 200%. We ask this though, is his humanity omnipresent? If his body is present in the bread and simultaneously present at the right hand of the Father, then we must conclude His physical body is indeed omnipresent. But there's a big Christological problem there if that's true. And so this also implicates Luther's view, Martin Luther's view of consubstantiation as well. Luther denies that there's a miracle in the sacrifice as Rome said was happening in, in the Eucharist at the Mass. But he said... The actual body of Christ was present in, with, and under the bread. And so both con and transubstantiation have confused the humanity and the divinity of Christ. Christ's divinity is omnipresent. Christ's humanity is localized wherever He happens to be, which is at the right hand of the Father. With Rome, there's the problem of idolatry as well. You see the worshiper bending the knee in the sacrament, in an act of worship 
towards the bread, right? The genuflection, they call it. I think that's how you pronounce it. And then there's plain common sense, right? So we're, 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 we're refuting Rome here uh, with uh, Scripture, with uh, uh, spiritual principles. But then there's just plain common sense, right? The bread and the cup have clearly not changed into something else. Rome has sought to deal with this philosophically rather than biblically. Borrowing from Aristotle, Aquinas set forth the doctrine of Rome by saying that the accidents don't change, but the substance does. In other words, the bread and the cup don't change in appearance. You couldn't take them and analyze them and find anything but bread and and wine. So the accidents remain the same, but the substance changes. And thus we have the term transubstantiation. But as they say, you can dress up a pig in a tux, but what do you have? You still have a pig in a tux, don't you? Because no matter how erudite you make something sound, it cannot clean up the obvious contradictions that persist. And that's the trouble with the Roman doctrine of transubstantiation. But then what are we left with? A mere memorialist view? I think there is a better way. And that's what's been known as the reform view of the supper. It is a view that our early Baptist forefathers believed in as well as evidenced by the 1689 London Baptist Confession. And this view speaks of the real spiritual presence of Christ at the supper. And again, we refer to Paul in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. This is this cup of blessing we bless and the bread we break, not a participation in the body and blood of Christ. And since it is... We are dealing with the real spiritual presence of Christ at the Lord's Supper. We truly feed upon Him. His human body is in that localized place at the right hand of God the Father, but spiritually He is with His people because Christ has two natures. One of them is divine, which means He holds all of the attributes of deity, including omnipresence. So Christ is not in the elements of the bread and wine. He is not the elements... But he is present in the message, in the, excuse me, in the preaching of the, excuse me, in the message of the elements that we are receiving of them. We, we, we would say, didn't you preach on the word earlier, a few, uh, earlier this month? On the word, you preached on the word, right? Yes, okay, well, anyway, maybe you didn't. Sorry about that if I did. How about this? Would we not say that Christ is present in the preaching of the word? Yes, we would, wouldn't we? A sermon can be spiritual food for you. So too, then, can the supper feed your soul. Robert Bruce said, You don't get a different Christ in the supper from the Christ you get in the Word, but you may get the same Christ better. So I exhort you, church, to enjoy the supper in such a way as to recognize that Christ is with you and that you truly feed upon Him. And the 1689 Baptist Confession so helpfully says this, Worthy recipients who outwardly partake of the visible elements in this ordinance also by faith inwardly receive and feed on Christ crucified and all the benefits of His death. They do so really and truly, yet not physically and bodily, but spiritually. The body and the blood of Christ are not present bodily or physically in the ordinance, but spiritually to the faith of the believers, just as the elements themselves are present to their outward senses 
End quote. And that is helpful for us. As we think back to my introduction where we caution against de-emphasizing spiritual realities. Let us apply what the Scripture teaches us to help us guard against that. Let's examine some ecclesiological implications and we'll be done. How often should we take the supper? How often do you do that, Peter? Twice a month. That's a good number. I mean, he is my host, right? I mean, I'm, you know, so, but anyway. The Bible doesn't exactly say how often that you must take the Lord's Supper. Although I think you could make a case that it's a pretty regular occurrence in the church, perhaps twice a month. And I don't, I don't think as much, much, I don't have a problem, obviously, with weekly communion, but I don't think that you can make a biblical case that, that they did take it weekly. Um, but I wouldn't criticize the church for having it that often. I would maintain that it's not good practice to have the supper infrequently. As an old pastor of mine said years ago, the Bible says as often as you do it, not as seldom as you do it. Again, it doesn't tell us in the Bible, but clearly they had a regular observance of the Lord's Supper and the importance of it for the life of the church indicates that it should be done with some degree of regularity and frequency. 1 Corinthians 11 clearly teaches us that the table should be fenced. That's another ecclesiological doctrine of the church implication. And that means to fence the table means that the warnings should be given before the supper is taken and received. You understand there's warnings, right? Only baptized believers should be recipients. Not only that, but there should be warnings given for those that are beset by hypocrisy. And lives of unconfessed sin. And this helps make the case for, I think this helps make the case for the regular participation or use of the Lord's Supper. People are pressed into warring against sin and repenting. Because the stakes are so high. Otherwise they should be abstaining from receiving the Lord's Supper because the penalty from God is so severe. Paul speaks of the fact that some of the saints have died because they've taken the supper in an unworthy manner. So it's serious business. In Michael Haken's recent book on baptism and the supper in Baptist history, which I highly recommend, Dr. Haken notes the modern changes to the church have to do with their de-emphasizing of the sacraments. The altar call has now replaced baptism. So just bow your heads and close your eyes and if, if you... If you want to go to heaven, slip up your hand. Now come forward if you slipped up your hand and sign the back of the Bible and you're in. No. No, it's baptism that's the entry into the church. In baptism, you're not showing that you've asked Jesus into your heart. That's not what you're showing. You publicly renounce the world and die to it. And you proclaim that you're with Christ no matter what. Similarly, The church has replaced the Lord's Supper with rededicating your life. So let's respond to the altar call to rededicate our lives. Instead, when the supper was practiced with regularity and the warnings emphasized and you understood that to refrain from the table was placing you outside the community of Christ and you were keeping yourself from His nourishment and benefits, 
because you were unwilling to repent, that acted as a disciplinary tool to the church to work repentance in individuals. Because it's either this. I take this food when I shouldn't take it, and I may be eating and drinking judgment to myself. Or I, I know that and I don't want to do that, so I'm cutting myself off from the blessings that God gives us in the supper. See how that works? See why regular participation in the supper should be used more than once a year? Right? More than twice a year? I think more than quarterly, which has been often practiced by Baptist churches and Reformed churches. So in that way, if we use the supper as it's intended to be used, you don't need the idea of rededicating your life. You actually repented so you could take the supper. It's that disciplinary action that must be upon the minds of the good pastors of this church and any church. That when your elders or your pastors and your deacons know the seriousness of taking the supper in an unworthy manner and they know that a church member is in some public unconfessed sin, that they go to them and tell them that for their benefit and for their protection, that they're going to withhold the table from them. Now, that's a tough conversation to have, isn't it? But it's one that should be done if you know this person is not repentant. None of that's done to embarrass anyone. It's done to protect them. And it's done to see them reconciled to the church. I can't help but think of the point of the Old Testament laws and how the people who were declared unclean, they were unclean, they were cut off from the covenant community and it was devastating for them. Well, much has changed in the New Testament church, but this kind of discipline should work in a true Christian in such a way that they desire to get back in good fellowship and repent so they can return to the blessing of Christ that's experienced in the supper. Well, much has been said today. Perhaps too much. I don't know. I hope it hasn't been too much for you. But I, I want to end on a note of encouragement for you. Much is made about taking the supper in an unworthy manner. And there are many tender-hearted and sensitive Christians who always feel so unworthy to take and receive the Lord's Supper. They know their weaknesses and how they've fallen so easily. And all they can think about is how weak they are. And it inhibits them from taking nourishment from Christ's table that He spread for them. This is a table Christ has spread for you. I'm reminded of Sinclair Ferguson telling of a woman in his congregation who struggled in this way. She was repentant, but very sensitive to her weaknesses and sins. And she'd been in the habit of turning down the supper when it was offered to her. And Ferguson, as a good pastor should do, went to her and asked her why she wouldn't take and receive that supper. Do you guys know Ferguson? How many listens to Ferguson from time to time? Great preacher, isn't he? And she said, Pastor, it is because I'm too weak. I cannot take the supper because I am too weak. Ferguson replied in his Scottish accent and with that deep voice, Dear woman, 
It is because you are weak that you must take the supper. It is because you are weak that you must take the supper. Church, if we take anything away from all that's been said today, it's that Christ has spread a table for us. He offers us spiritual nourishment. He invites us to come and feed upon Him. And He is a wonderful and an all-sufficient Savior. He has purchased your salvation. He has brought you into the family of God. He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Believe upon Him. Feed upon Him. And be nourished by Him through the Lord's Supper. Today and as oft as you do it. Father, I thank you for this gracious invitation to come and preach for this lovely group of people the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. What a great honor to do so, Lord. And what a great subject to be talking about. The supper. A table is spread. And we can eat. Let's think of that imagery in Isaiah 55. And you know, come and buy without money, without price. Come by and eat. Eat and drink. All to your fill. Revelation 19, which is what this is foreshadowing. Marriage supper of the Lamb. And like good Baptists, we love to eat. What we're left with right now until that great day is to feed spiritually upon Christ. And He has promised us if we eat His flesh and drink His blood, we'll have life. Thank you for that promise. Please bless this church and their pastors. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.